Hello and welcome to Keyframes in Betweens, a mini podcast about anime. I'm your host, Ben Halliburton, and with me today is Duncan. Hey there. And Jeff. Yellow. You'll notice I did my slightly modified intro, which means that this is not a canon mainstream anime podcast. We are, in fact, doing a spinoff. We are doing a spinoff on Escaflone. So tune in two weeks from now for our end of season wrap up and then two weeks after that for our anime in the mainstream wrap up. But for now, um, if you've been a listener of this podcast, you'll know that about a year ago, I watched Escaflone and totally lost my shit about how good it was, how good this anime from 1996 was and why no one had told me about it. Um, and at least the very least, I managed to like, Pay it forward. And now Duncan and Jeff have also watched Escaflone, as well as the movie from the year 2000, Escaflone, or sometimes titled Escaflone, colon, A Girl in Gaia. So, yeah, um, I'm going to try not to fuck this up because I love this anime a lot. But but uh, Escaflone is basically a giant robot anime, but with heavy shoujo trappings. It's also an early proto-isekai where this girl is swept away to... Uh, a hidden planet that orbits around Earth called Gaia, which refers to Earth as the mystic moon. And uh, there she discovers a warring factions and a sinister empire conquering the world bit by bit and trying to do some suspicious things with luck manipulation and divination and so forth. And she bands together with a small team of refugees and they do a lot of really mid-90s anime shit. Um, it's got the whole package. Fighting love, cat girls, fighting cat girls you love. So yeah, um, I, I loved this because what it reminds me of is it reminds me of being in high school and being invited over to a friend's place where they just happen to be watching some random ass anime show and you have no idea what's going on in every episode a million different things happen and it's all kind of supported by this very ethereal music and this very strange art including like weird pinocchio noses which i'm sure we'll talk about in a bit mm -hmm. um and yeah i love it the movie less so but we'll get to that mm -hmm. uh how how were y'all aware of escafloni either roughly contemporaneously um, or in your later years, and how was the experience of watching it for you as a good start? <laughs> uh, well, my first exposure to Escaflone was in my buddy's older sister's uh, bootleg VHS collection. Um, nice. With, like, of, Speaking like, of going subs. over to a friend's house randomly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this was probably, you know, in the first 10 anime that I'd ever seen, and, you know, I remembered like enjoying it and being very confused by the ending and then not thinking a whole <laughs> lot about it afterwards. Like I've I looked through my old DVDs and found that I had the movie as well and watched it <laughs> at some point. And then I had like vague memories of like, oh, it was weird because they took out most of the robots. And that seems like kind of a big <laughs> thing to remove. But again, not really thinking that hard about it. And remembering it fondly and then when you got way back into it last year i was like <laughs> yeah. oh you know this sounds like a good thing that we should do a tween for and you know one year later we've finally done it yes and <laughs> moving I... at the speed of keyframes <laughs> <laughs> and yeah it holds up very very well i think i have a bit more of an insight as to like what it's going for 
nowadays and i could see why i thought the movie was so weird and yeah i'm excited to talk about it i should i should strictly say that i watched the movie first um probably around 2014 or 2015 because i was curious about the show and this was at the point this is about when i was beginning to we're beginning to head towards starting keyframes in the first place and so i was like i should know about famous shows mm-hmm. but i don't want to watch a whole 26 episode series so i'll just watch the movie that boils that down really well yeah. i assume and then i watched it and i was like well again not to spill my hand, not to tip my hand too much but i was like oh this is not very good i guess escaflone is bad um and then <laughs> i didn't think about it for for five or six years although i did buy the blu-ray when it was on sale for eight dollars because sure even a bad movie that's this beautiful for eight dollars is yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll do that mm. duncan well, I, I don't really have... I, I, I was a latecomer to anime, really, compared to you guys. I don't really have the childhood um, associations or even teenage associations with it. Um, so perception of it was entirely built upon assumptions. Like, mm-hmm. you know when you, you hear of something and someone describes it in, like... Uh, it's with mechs, but they're dragons and they're on the moon. And <laughs> you're like, okay, that's... Two out of the, two out of the three for Turin A Gundam. Yeah. But yes, go on. <laughs> because of its, the year it came out, it very much sits in the, the shadow of uh, Eva. Um, and Eva was what introduced me to, like, subversion of the mech, the, the mech genre. And then I sort of started watching things like um, Razafon and uh, this, which introduced a more magical element to the genre. In in some ways, like, they're, they're two very contrasting elements, magic and technology, to to our modern palette. Like, most people kind of think um, of uh, magic as, like, superstition, and uh, particularly the elements in Escaflonia of fortune-telling. Like, fortune-telling has mm-hmm. a has a particularly dubious reputation in the modern era and mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting that we we've got this this sort of tension between technology and and uh mysticism which is a thoroughly a modern thing because one thing Escaflonia reminds us with the appearance of a certain character later on is that um, for a long time uh, science and um, that mysticism were one and the two, one and the same. And uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good observation. Yeah, I I, I don't know if you want to to give a a, a sort of more more. Th- more thorough so we can sort of get onto some of the themes and a more thorough a more thorough synopsis i'm the one who watched this a year ago i feel some (laughs) other people should give the synopsis i mostly i have like all my favorite my favorite scenes like preserved in amber in my head but yeah it was um i'm going to be the least useful when it comes to plot elements i mean i know that like they spend the first 12 episodes just running from the zybok empire which is trying to capture them and Mm -hmm. i mean i i think stop their plans we we start with um, Hitomi being f- basically teleported up from her high school. Um, yeah, where well, she's she's not. A- I think. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt because I think the first episode of Escaflone <laughs> gets a gets the short shrift. Uh, it starts with her like. She is, you know, not a super popular girl, but she's like a talented track athlete and she's got a crush mm-hmm. on her senpai, Amino, and 
during a very elaborate courting ritual in which she is going to reveal her feelings <laughs> to him if she can do a 100-meter dash within 10 swings of, of her mysterious pendant that swings exactly one sec, you know, one second per cycle uh, and without ever slowing down. And then in the midst of this, uh, a dragon appears from a pillar of light in the sky as well as a hot, like, sword-wielding prince who fights the dragon and then cuts its heart out and while he's being transported and you know after she saves his life with a a uh, like a prognostication she warns him that he's about to be killed he takes her back to uh the mystic you know he takes her back to gaia sort of accidentally along with her pendant and then that's when she's mm-hmm gets wrapped up in this uh in this drama and there's a lot of elements in that first episode that are important but like i know i think it was the uh like the the cartoon network adaptation that just sort of chopped that first episode down to about five minutes on the front end of the second episode (laughs) just to like give you the gist (laughs) of like what was going on because they didn't i mean the er the early episodes were famously cut down um originally the first episode didn't have any credits because they just had so much stuff that they'd cut. Um, and then the DVD, the DVD releases have had director's cuts that have fuller have fuller scenes there. So it has been a show where like, where there is a lot of discomfort with how much ground they have to cover just to get it so that she is someone from earth who's in a weird parallel earth where there's robots and dragons and cat girls and weird floating fortresses and a Jareth the Goblin King ripoff who is trying to do do things, yeah. evil things. So, yeah, it's a lot of ground to cover. And I think it, I think one of the things that really strikes me about the early episodes of Escaflone is just how fast everything moves. It is like it is mm-hmm. stuff will happen in, in the first half of the episode that could be two or three episodes these days. It feels like an incredibly fast paced series in that respect. Um, and then that starts to kind of shake apart in the second half of the show when they have to start tying things up. But still, it is an incredibly fast paced show and it's really enjoyable for that. Mm-hmm. It actually reminds me very heavily of the uh, the first few episodes of Gundam 1979 or mm. 0079, I guess, if you're going by the UC uh, <laughs> <laughs> calendar that again like was very were very fast very tense and a lot happened and they, like a lot of characters were introduced a lot of concepts were introduced and then it sort of like slows down but excuse me duncan i miss i interrupted you would you like to continue uh no <laughs> i think, think okay, we covered, well. covered covered what i was gonna gonna say is that uh it's she's not exactly happy but she's not exactly unhappy either. like yeah she's just normal yeah, I think like that's actually kind of interesting on its its own in that um, anime doesn't tend to have like just kind of average age kids. Like as you say, Ben said like she's um, athletically talented, but not a star by any means, um, and she's not like the most popular girl, and she's not an outcast. She's just like kind of middle of the, middle of the road, and mm-hmm. like she's proactive, kind- which is a really interesting yes. and nice trait for a female yes, character, exactly. especially in a giant robot it's, show. It's very weird for me to be praising like, oh, she has hobbies and a friend and a crush. And the first thing we see her doing really is making plans to confess to that crush, which mm-hmm. is not something that anime tends to prioritize as a major plot beat this early in the show. 
Mm -hmm. It probably wouldn't if she wasn't going to be spirited away by a weird light that appears when she is running a 10 second mile or 10 second, 10 second, hundred kilometer. I think that's that's important to (laughs) thing to introduce about her character though, that as a, a person who acts as an influence on others, because like, that's like very much what it goes towards in the end of this, this, the, the, the arcs uh, mm-hmm. her her effect on uh, Van and the way she her choices will well and also in, in terms of the way uh, I think we need to get on to the whole fortune telling and uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> yes because like it's, it's such a so as Jeff mentioned um, she has a, a pendant with a sort of pink stone it's, it's kind of like never it's we don't know what it is it's it's probably i think they identify it as dragonstone or something similarly uh mystically sounding yeah at um, some point but, they reveal that it's an artifact from gaia that was brought back yeah. by her grandmother mm-hmm. and then give it to her as a, like an inheritance yeah. or as a present yeah but yeah yeah and what she she does with that is she sort of does divining so she'll mm-hmm. she'll pick it up she'll sort of let it move and point at things to show where something is and she also does uh fortune telling with the the tower i think you know the ex- exact type as well ben like um mm. like it's a it's a merlin deck not the traditional not the tr- traditional tarot deck but yes it uses a a kind of weird tarot deck not weird but less common so is there anything i was wondering if there was like any anything notable about that about why you would choose that over the the other is it just like a i mean i can guess i don't know if (laughs) yes i think that's it's probably rule of cool it's probably wanting to defamiliarize people's associations although like um so when I was watching this, I kind of wanted to like read to have someone read stuff along. And this was before uh, Anime News Network was doing their uh, their rewatch uh, of like old classic shows and pretending like they're airing shows and reviewing them. So I found this random blog called Pirates of the Burly Griffin, which is some dude in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, but he actually does a fairly good job of noting like which major arcana um, and in some cases uh, minor arcana uh, are go with each episode and does his best to kind of as someone who's obviously not very knowledgeable about tarot me neither so that's fine um trying to figure out like what's being communicated by the different by the different cards but generally speaking the merlin tarot has a more has a more like naturalist it's like it's birds and beasts okay and uh and are the are the suits as opposed to to cups and wands and swords yeah, birds, beasts, and serpents that, that versus makes, cups, that, wands, that and makes, swords. That makes sense. Like it, it being being more um, more rooted in kind of uh, the nature, and yeah. rather than uh, sort of myth. Yeah, and I noticed that the uh, the tarot at the beginning of each episode would relate to the episode sort of like as a vibe rather than anything more esoteric than that. And I get the strong sense that that was probably the level at which it was being used by the writers. Like, I don't think there was like, like a hidden numerology that you could like pull out of this by any means, really. Yeah. The, the way it's used in, in the show is that um, when 
Hitomi wants to know about someone, uh, she'll she'll often sit down and give them a, and say, "Oh, I, I'm. Everyone thinks I'm un, I'm like remarkably good at this. Like I have a talent for this. She does. She it isn't something like she seems like incredibly into. It's just like, oh, I happen to be really good at this. But everyone tells me so. Uh, yeah, d- doesn't she literally say that like people have told me that I'm good at this, so I keep doing it? It's kind of Shinji and his cello from Evangelion <laughs> a bit of mm-hmm. like everyone told me. I, this doesn't particularly bring me pleasure because, like as you said, she like her readings are almost always correct, and it doesn't seem like they, it brings her happiness. And in fact, as she gets more embroiled in this war, they they actively bring her unhappiness, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. becomes a very explicit issue, which I think is what you were headed towards, yeah. Duncan. So er- early on, she's making readers readings for the the various characters of the the motley crew um on the their on the final of, fantasy airship that they're on yeah they yeah. and uh, early on they it sort of takes her her readings are more about personal back backstory and about moment to moment uh peril but as mm-hmm. the the season goes on she gets asked to make sort of readings about bigger and more important events um someone's marriage the course of a war and throughout that that time we're 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 all thinking wow she she really is in, incredibly accurate at this like she she hits her mark every time and yeah. one of the, the 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 great things about about this this series is is that it's sort of big twist of I think it comes about just is it which big twist Duncan okay which well, big twist it's, 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 it's twist about Hitomi's uh, uh, powers yes is, is mm-hmm. that she's not reading the future she's changing the future and mm-hmm. like that is a, a a very like as Ben said like the fact that she's someone who's affecting others and cho- and choosing to affect them is is I think like makes that um, feel more natural. Like it's like yeah, that makes sense. This is someone who wouldn't stand back and and let something happen. She wants to to change these things. She wants these things to happen. She's she ha- has a, she's someone who pursues her wants, not just mm-hmm. bottles them up. And, and it's also revealed that her power comes through from things that she's afraid of happening as well. And yeah. when specifically when she uses it out of fear or out of malice or out of selfishness, the that's when things tend to snap back on her. And this revelation comes to her about two thirds of the way through the show. And the like the, the, the final arc of her character, which is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great story about her. And it's about her realizing that she has to push past these fears and not become totally passive and still go after those things, understanding that her actions hurt others. When we, when she was first, when she's first introduced to us, she's going after a boy and it's later revealed that she knows that her best friend also likes this boy, but, and she knows she's hurting her friend, but at the same time still pursues it out of selfishness, you know, because like she isn't a paragon, she is a normal person. And it's through this, through the, she's a teenage girl. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's it's through this story that she comes to terms with this and grows in like an interesting and meaningful way that you don't usually get out of a big robot fighting show. And the fact that it largely 
abandons the big robot fighting in the in the back third i think probably will turn a lot of people off if that's just what they were there for and i wonder if that's one of the reasons why this show is not like generally regarded as being the classic that it probably should be is that they people feel like they are sold a bill of goods kind of like the same way people are turned off by the end of evangelion like the series and then the movie itself goes in a completely different direction at the end because yeah it's like hey do you want them to do you want giant robot fights here's asuka fighting fighting 17 robots at once yeah and they have wings and, and it shit. rules. And <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, it's I, I agree. Like one of the biggest pleasures is that like it would be. So I feel like the the shadow being cast over Vision of Escaflone for me is my early experience with with 12 Kingdoms. Uh, based on the novels there where it, there's a fairly similar thing of this of this girl who's just kind of got a normal life, although in, in 12 Kingdoms, she's like the perfect class rep, but everyone hates her because she has red hair. And so they think she like secretly dyes her hair to, to be special. So she has lots of like lots of shallow friends, but not lots of close friends. And there's a fairly strong cast and crew overlap um, between the two shows. But she also gets spirited away and is like stressed out and miserable and doesn't know how she can help and gradually realizes that she has skills that are that are just as important as being able to, to, to fight really well. It's a fairly standard like shonen arc in that respect. But the fact that it's a standpoint of women that's taking place in the late 2000s when just like the shonen formula, not the shonen battler formula, but the shonen, just the shonen like fantasy adventure formula is just not not built to accommodate female bodies and female emotions, I think, a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So even though I ended up getting very frustrated with 12 Kingdoms, I'd like to rewatch it someday and see if I was just in a bad mood for four months straight. It's possible now, I realize, as an adult. But uh, I do like, like, that that he, to me, like, she has, she, it's, a, there's an isekai and she's allowed to freak out and be unhappy about being in a different world. And then she finds her place and she has powers that matter and her relationships with her character, with the characters matter. The fact that, like, I don't think we're ever paid off on why Alan looks like her crush from Alan, one of the, the ever victorious knight, Alan, is it Shazar? Yeah, yeah. It looks exactly like her, her, her crush on the track team, and just like trying to, like how he, how he to me has these relationships, these characters, and how those relationships are underpinned by her special power, which is like uncanny divination, gives her a lot of agency in a plot that could otherwise be about her just ping ponging back and forth between different daddy protector boys, and the fact that it's not is such a pleasant surprise. Like the fact that like. Mm-hmm. People come and ask her for to like do tarot readings because like they hear they're good and mm. yeah and then the, when at one point when she just decides to to lie about one which I think we we, we alluded to earlier um, mm-hmm. and like the great disaster that comes out of that where she draws the tower and she's like oh shit tower is one of the worst cards you can well all all tarot cards have blah, blah 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 you know you get the point but like for that situation the tower is like sudden disaster and annihilation. And she like chooses not to not to give that reading. And Mm -hmm. there's like for someone who is a relatively passive character, she is extraordinarily active. She's extraordinarily involved in the plot and not just as a football for for the for the male heroes to pass around. And even in the first few episodes that are so frantic and is mostly about running and fighting. She, I think, saves one or both of the love interests like once an episode through her powers and just through like sheer bravery of like you know long jumping 
you know, across a thousand foot <laughs> void to get into an enemy starship to or like floating fortress to warn him that he's about to get stabbed in the back and then, you know, and then succeeds, you know, where if she had not done that, he would have died. And it's yeah. very refreshing to see her like as important as any of like the sword wielding hero boys with their big armor. Right. It's not it still definitely has the shonen structure of like the hero adapting to circumstances and gaining power. But like the show, the, the heavy emphasis on romance from the show, the shoujo trappings, which were added during development um, and just having a, a, the female be the main character, I think really does change the outlook. Like um, I remember this uh, while you were talking, Jeff, but like the fact that like this, the the Zybok mechs, I guess they're called Melefs. Yeah, Gaimalefs. Sorry, the robots are called Melefs and Gaimalefs, and we're never told what the distinction between the two is. I think like more powerful Melefs are called Gaimalefs. It's a very Pokemon sort of thing, um, mm-hmm. but like they have they have they have indivisibility cloaks, and she is able using like pendant divination to detect where they're going to be and where they're going to strike, and then she teaches Van that, and like there's no. Like it doesn't make her less useful. It just means that there's two people can that can do this special power, and like she's the better one at it. And it's oh no, it's it's very, it's very based on like relationships between the characters, much more so than I think Shonen is. Like as mm-hmm. we said, like we're used to we're used to her being a damsel and these dudes just being angry dudes with with pain and revenge caught up in them. Because both Van and and Alan do have do have parodically tragic backstories <laughs> uh, that that. I feel like in a different show would would overshadow their current relationships with with Hitomi and with each other. But yeah, it's just, it's mm-hmm. a very balanced cast um, and everyone gets their time while it's still having like very feminine touches seems seems dismissive. But maybe that's just because our culture is misogynistic, but it has it's got a very feminine touch to um, weird robots made out of knight armor fighting <laughs> And one can turn into a dragon sometimes, and it never never looks as cool as they think it looks. But still, they're they're trying. It actually you surf on a... top of the dragon with like with like with like boogie board handles. It's very funny. Yeah. It's very nineties. Uh, and this might be just because I'm in the middle of reading the Inheritance trilogy, and it actually nice. reminds me of the structure that <laughs> N.K. Jemsen has, where typically she has like interesting female characters who have powers but are not powerful in like a political sense and are is surrounded by you know male characters who are you know powerful differently but still vulnerable and it's as much about how they fit together and work together and that's an important theme in the show is that it's about how people need to come together and how individuals are you know even if they are, you know, all powerful, will eventually destroy the things around them in their selfishness. And we haven't really talked about right. the bad guys in the show at all. Yeah, yeah. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and move into full plot spoilers as opposed to light plot spoilers and talk about Doran Kirk and Zybok, the Zybok Empire, and Fulkin and Delanda. I can't remember the cat names. Heckle and Jekyll, I'm sure. But, yeah, something uh, like that. <laughs> Duncan's horrifying. <laughs> I, I could have told that you would like the, the two cat girls and their incredibly tragic backstory. Everyone has a tragic backstory. That's what's very shoujo, shoujo about this is everyone so much loss and death from war in, in those characters. Mm-hmm. So the Zybok Empire is headed by the mysterious Emperor Dornkirk, who is also seems to be and has his own powers of divination that he utilizes through like gigantic machinery 
that is derived from like the the Atlantean people, like the dragon people from Atlantis, who had like discovered the the, the power to like change fate, and in doing so had created Gaia and destroyed themselves subsequently. And mm-hmm. he is using his main henchman, uh, Falcon, who happens to be Van's brother, who at the beginning of the series destroys their home of Fennel and scatters all the people to the wind. And that is the major driving like motivation for Van, who wants nothing more than to catch up to his brother and to kill him. And they're also like hounded after by the Dornkirk's like, or Falcons, I guess, like attack dog, yeah. Uh, Delandau, who is in his own right, like he's like you know the the laughing psycho kind of character, but is like still <laughs> afforded like like a tenderness and like a vulnerability because he has like a genuine affection for his men. When Van kills them in a in the course of the series, like that that as much as anything drives him drives his hatred and everything else. And these guys are all basically trying to allow Doran Kirk to create his like his Atlantis machine, which he wants to use to like make everybody happy. You know, like the classic hero thing of like, you know, I'm going to end all pain and all strife by doing this thing that just happens to require me to destroy half the world to do it. <laughs> the, the Atlanteans made it and they're all dead now, but those are probably unrelated things. Yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> like they, they, they did it badly. I'm better at this. And I, Sir Isaac Newton, am better at this. So yeah, it's, it's revealed that he is. Like, <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist anymore. <laughs> yeah, he's also from the Mystic Moon, and the fact that the two characters from Earth happen to have power of divination and changing fate, I think, is not an accident right. by any stretch. They, co- they come from the Mystic Moon. They come from the Mystic Moon. So I mean, yeah. So one thing I first challenge there is that I don't think it's. I think it's implied fairly heavily that um, Dawn Kirk slash Isaac Newton what a sentence in the first place um, uh, it, it used to be one of those like trip you out things like in the yeah. in the early 2000s being like you know that Escafloni the bad guy is Sir Isaac Newton and you're like well maybe. And it's yeah. mostly based on the fact that we know the real life Isaac Newton was as enamored with like Christian mysticism and Gnosticism as you know a given and numerology especially Bi- oh yeah biblical numerology was especially his focus yeah. and we'll alchemy. post a link about all the all the weird shit he believed in that completely yeah. blows up the idea of the rational science the rational gentleman scientist because yeah. yeah. he he had times where he he fully devoted himself to to mis- mythical studies rather than science like where mm. you'd have uh, people writing to him saying come back and do, do proper science and he's, he's like no uh, this is more important i have to uh, continue mm-hmm. my, stu- my, stu- my other studies yeah but the fact anyway. that he was able to find something that seemed to objectively describe uh reality and you know in gravity and things like that he was like oh well then these other ancients who you know because it's the 17th century and i'm sure ben will jump down my throat for this but there was a, an idea that the ancients knew more than we did now and that we were you know in essentially in a fallen world and that all we could do is to try and recapture that ancient knowledge and so he found numerology that's, that's a very that's a very that's a very medieval outlook i think is the idea that the idea that instead of humanity coming from a place of ignorance to a place of supremacy that we had supremacy 
if if you're a very devout person, you had we had supremacy under God in in you know the Garden of Eden, and now we've like all had all of the ensuing generations have just been lost knowledge. So there is, yeah, I agree. I'm not jumping down your throat. I'm agreeing with you by jumping down your throat. Uh, <laughs> okay. And, and yeah, and so, like, you know, if you have that kind of outlook, if you happened upon, if you're smart enough to happen upon an explanation for gravity, and then it's like, well, why wouldn't alchemy be real? Because people before us knew so much more. And so, you know, using that, you know, sort of, you know, that, that little real-life tidbit to sort of spice up the idea of Emperor Dornkirk, you know, coming to a world where he can, in fact, put his mysticism to yeah. use. And, you know, creating this, like, emperor empire of super science in a world of otherwise, you know, you know, fantasy medieval, you know, typical tropes of, like, you know, mixing any given time period you want for aesthetics. But, you know, <laughs> Zybok has, like, floating fortresses and laser beams and flamethrowing mechs with invisibility cloaks and stuff that nobody else has. And they can... And weird telescoping swords. They really like the weird telescoping sword yeah sword liquid beams. metal stuff it was the 90s and liquid yeah. metal was cool in the 90s there's a lot of emperor's throne stuff going on with uh, isaac newton as well like yeah that's, that, that, like, i have not i have not seen I, I i i think i asked you about this ben in case it was like a trope i did i i wasn't aware of like this idea of like a ruler sort of infused with their throne and like it seems like something which has to have like some sort of mythological thing but uh, like both i mean my my honest we can cut this actually into discussion but i think it's like the king under the mountain um sort of thing from uh the myth of barbarossa and i, I can't even remember what where barbarossa is supposed to but he's supposed to be supposed to be under a mountain he's often shown um sitting on a throne where the roots have entangled oh, his okay. body and yeah. his beard has tangled with the roots and so he's just like and he's just sleeping there until he wakes up, until Germany needs him, which is why Barbarossa is the name of Hitler's invasion of Russia. So, <laughs> um, but uh, I'll really look pull it up through there, quick. Barba. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the it's the it, Kiffhauser Kiffhauser Mountains are where he's supposed to where he's supposed to be sleeping. Um, so there is like this idea of like the sleeping king who still embodies the embodies the the spirit of of a country but i don't think it's meant to be this kind of kind of sinister thing or a a metaphor for a a king who's held on to his throne for too long which is what i think it's meant to be with with dornkirk yeah. Yeah. and with the emperor in um in a uh, warhammer 40k someone who's held on to the throne so long that they've become part of the throne and yeah. they're now they're now unremovable from it yeah there's the whole idea of, of whatever they may have like you can argue that Dornkirk started out with fairly, ben fairly not utopian, but wanted to make make life better for the, the people who good, lived. Good in. intentions, yeah. 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 Wrote to help over good intentions, etc. But yeah. like, yeah, found this like in the little episode where we find out who he is he finds this country like put upon by all its its all the the greater countries like that that was kind of the interesting like every country apart from the country their country had these ancient warrior dragons they had and that because they didn't had that they were sort of like always getting caught in these wars between these these knights and so he just creates this uh, scientific kingdom which doesn't give no fucks about knights and just eventually right. <laughs> he rolls over and makes its own better knights and yeah and ends up just completely becoming far 
far worse than what he, the problem he was trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like losing losing sight of what you're actually trying to do. I think is a pretty a pretty heavy theme in Escaflote. Yeah, I think Hitomi's uh, pend- pendant has a certain uh, alchemist stone kind of uh, uh, mm-hmm. thing to it. Like it, it's like this thing which allows her to um, takes her her will and makes it manifest in a way. And I think like there's thought like there was a certain amount of um like the echoes of rome going on with the way um the there's each each of these kingdoms has like one or two has like a half dozen uh suits of armor which they carefully maintain and have very little idea how they were created and like Mm -hmm. there's literally just like this um we find in one episode this ship of people flying around out there who still know how to repair them and they're the only oh, no. people and <laughs> it's the coolest part of the show for me honestly yeah. you yes. know like atlantis gates and the people like that they like they like repair on these really obscure contracts that no one else understands that like they're they're still they're still maintaining the warranties of different <laughs> of different mech suits from like literal centuries ago it's so I, i'm sorry i just yeah. i didn't i mean i don't want to geek out but yeah i love that <laughs> It's one of the best visuals of the show. It is. Yeah. It, it it does come out of nowhere, literally and metaphorically. Like, <laughs> like, oh, they're going to get get it repaired. Okay, these are, this will probably be mystics of some sort. Instead, a giant portal opens in the sky. Big spaceship drop down. Okay, <laughs> on big spaceship be people who seem like half mechanical and who are are, are like, yeah, it's it's just very 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 right strange yeah they had kind of um, a, and yet, and yet the robots and, kind of vibe to it like from yeah, 40k yeah. if there are any grim dark fans out there well and yeah. yet and yet the robots run on dragon hearts and there's like a whole thing where they're like excavating fossilized dragon hearts to, yeah. to keep fueling their mechs too so yeah. yeah so it's like the dragon heart obviously is like basically a, a philosopher's stone like that's it reacts to emotion and uh we we see it as as like the the thing which pa- it's which powers everything like it's it's which no one true truly knows how to control um but this idea that the escaflone is kind is still within this this um collection of different robots maintained by different things this this one robot this one white knight called escaflone is still special it is still unique it is still um important and that and that is because it is the one one of those many robots which can most make its users will manifest that's the, that's the, the difference the others you pilot Escaflone becomes in sync with its pilot for 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 good and for ill. With the, mm-hmm. the it, I, I'm not sure if it would have, have come pre Eva the equivalent episode in Eva because they were being obviously being put out at roughly the same time. Is that um, they do the whole pilot being absorbed into their their machine thing and yeah, like yeah. and part of me really wants to know what when that. Ep- particular episode aired <laughs> compared to when the 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 same the same thing happens into Eva because like that's just that's almost a, a deep impact um uh 
Armageddon, Armageddon type type thing going on. Like that's a a very particular uh, thing. Like a person getting absorbed by their machine, and yet there's both these things going for it. Well, if we talk about if to briefly address that, if we talk about mechs as the idea of assuming assuming the armor of masculinity, assuming assuming like a giant like crawl literally crawl inside a giant man who is strong and who no matter how much he gets hurt you'll never get hurt there's very freudian overtones there and so the idea that you get absorbed by and lost inside that mech i think also is just kind of a natural outcome of the like the psycho psychosocial or even psychosexual connotations of mech fighting um mm-hmm. the interest the interesting thing for me is just that Escaflone really does not care about the details of its mechs until it really does. And so mm-hmm. oftentimes they'll just be like big, big suits you go out and fight in. And then there's all these different rules and like hitting and hitting and hitting in vulnerable or non-vulnerable places. Like part of Alan's incredible ability. He's just, he's just really good at stabbing the dragon heart in other in other suits. Like it's completely harmless. It just it just completely disables the mech. Well, not hurting the person at all versus the, the dismemberment that often happens when a really difficult battle is going on of literally tearing apart this robot so that it can no longer fight. Um, mm-hmm. The show, I feel like the show wants to have more to say about like the psychological damage that long-term violence like does to people. Cause I think that's what Van's character is ultimately supposed to be is someone who's just been fighting so long that the fighting is the point. Um, and that that's kind of bleeding over in this weird sort of mystical codependency that he and he to me end up having as all mm-hmm. Alan recedes uh, as a romantic option because Malaren is there or the runaway princess from a, from one of the kingdoms that they pass through. Yeah. Um, and Fulcan, yeah, his like, brother uh, is yeah. revealed to have uh, his older, you know, it's his older brother. And in their kingdom of Fennel, they had this rite of passage where you have to go out and kill a dragon and it's revealed mm-hmm. that, you know, everybody in his kingdom thinks that he ran away and he was a coward. But what actually had happened was that he was on the cusp of killing the dragon. And he had a sudden insight that the only reason the dragon was fighting him was because he had brought the violence to the dragon. And in this moment of hesitation, the dragon, you know, struck him and escaped. And it was Dornkirk that found him and, like, rebuilt his body and, you know, sold uh, Fulcan on this you know, vision of the future where, you know, I can remove all hostility from people's hearts. I can make peace universal. And, you know, Fulcan is, you know, seduced by this. And, you know, he believes that any, you know, atrocity is justified if it, you know, if it ultimately culminates in this goal, you know, versus Van, who, you know, he successfully killed the dragon with the help of Hitomi. Um, And he, you know, and he, doesn't really and, and it's and part of his journey throughout the show is that he realizes that Hitomi makes him more powerful and he his eventual apotheosis at the end is that he tells her like I know you can make me stronger but I don't want to hurt you anymore by using your power and part of their bond is that they know when to stop and they know how to take responsibility for their own uh for their own actions without relying on the other but still relying on them emotionally and Mm -hmm. uh you know in in other important ways like that's one of the interesting things about the show is that it has a very nuanced uh, you know understanding of 
like of human relationships. It's not just about, you know, we need to be together. We need to do everything together. It's, you know, it's like you, you could hurt someone by letting them rely on you. And it's, and it's, and they, and they never really harp on it either. Like I, I really had to like sort of meditate on like what the hell happened in the last couple of episodes to figure (laughs) out like what, what it was trying to convey. Cause it it does get kind of confusing. Do we want to roll into the, what's happening at the end? It does throw a lot of twists at you to say the least. Mm. Um, Yeah. I I think, yeah, we should, should just outline how it, how it finishes and then perhaps talk about some of those. So one of the interesting things about the show is that almost throughout the entire series, the heroes fail to stop uh, Dord Kirk and the Zybok Empire. They consistently roll over all of their attempts to resist. Uh, they capture, you know, the power spot, which we got lots of laughs out of because it's one of those like, you know, English words that people keep saying, and it just sounds very funny. Uh that you know, one of the one of the kingdoms has this like important Atlantean artifact and allows Doran Kirk to put his plan into the the final phases, and eventually he manages to like you know, the part one of the the plot elements of the show is that when Hitomi and Van are together, Doran Kirk's machines don't work, and mm-hmm. in you know using Falcon and his minions. And Delandau, he eventually manages to split them up. Hitomi, like at one point, sort of loses uh, loses hope, and in dis- in her despair, returns to Earth, and allowing Doran Kirk to like activate his machines. And in the in the very end, she returns, reunites with Van, uh, just as the machines are uh, turning on, and in doing so. You know, it basically gives everybody the will to like make their dreams come true. But the problem is that all of these warriors want everything, and so everybody immediately starts turning on each other. And it's only, and you know, Alan and Van are at each other's throats as well. Mm-hmm. And eventually, uh, you know, the the spell is broken by Hitomi returning. You know, sort of rescue. You know, going to Dornkirk and begging him to to stop it and van coming to rescue her and destroying the machine in the process. And I think like somewhere like the intent is to say that like, we have to have a society, you know, we live in a society and if everybody is just out for themselves, it will shatter, but we have to be able to rely on each other, you know, for things to work. And I think there's like, a latent sort of like idea of that, like maybe the, the, the hierarchy is good. Like maybe we have to have some people be in charge over other people because if everybody is just, you know, everybody is equal and it's just a war of all versus all, everything is going to fall apart. Like that that isn't Mm -hmm. sustainable. You have to have at some point, you know, a nation that is the body of the, the King and the King has to be, you know, the sort of like divinely guided ruler and again, nothing like this is ever like explicit, but I think there's like an assumption baked into the writer's ideas that affects this. And I think it's also an interesting uh, uh, contrast to Evangelion, which, you know, their idea of that, like, you know, a top down application of forced harmony is as terrifying as, you know, as anything 
which mm. you know we see in the end of Evangelion and the everybody turning to orange drink. Mm. I I think I I felt a little little different about about what how how they were what they were saying there is it's I kind of uh, saw it as more like almost like there's this sense of uh, emotional momentum like people will kept feeling what they were already feeling like suddenly being given everything didn't change them they just kept mm-hmm. wanting what they had wanted previously and it was kind of like this this idea of um that people aren't going to be satisfied if they're given everything like it, it's this idea that you just the the way you are raised and what you are told you need and you want stick with you and and if you've been fighting for ten years you're going to keep fighting even after uh, uh, what you are uh, were fighting over has has ceased to be something that matters and it kind of just seemed to be this this elementalist f- feel to it rather than. Uh, saying like you need some sort of over overreaching hand to dictate um where we're gonna go it was more that you can't you can't rely on on sort of uh solving someone's prop problems to so- like ah oh, it's, it's really difficult it's like there's co- War is not cause always cause and effect. Effect hatred outlives its cause. I think is is kind of what it's saying. Like that hatred is irrational. You can't solve it through ra- through rational actions. And, and equally, love is irrational. You can't defeat love through rational actions. It's it was kind of like stating that human emotions are not things which can be solved. And I think also. Pretty consistent theme throughout the show uh, is that like Hitomi goes through like several stages of you know first uh, you know going after what she wants subconsciously and then deciding you know and then realizing her power and realizing the consequences of using it and retreating from it and then finally realizing that she has to face those things if she is going to help the people that she loves and nobody else you know, at that time had had that, you know, those insights. And so they, you know, they were all stuck in that first stage and that combined with, you know, whatever the actual effects of the Atlantis machine having, you know, driving everybody mad. And I think there is, you know, it was, you know, it was through Hitomi's experiences throughout the series. And I think the part of the reason why Alan looked like her, you know, her initial love interest, you know, before she'd left the earth is that he represented that, that sort of drive of, you know, I want this person and I don't care about the consequences. And eventually she learned, you know, she, you know, fully appreciated what those consequences would be and let him go as, you know, and went and moved more towards Van uh, as she started having those, you know, those insights where that nobody else had, had benefited from yet. Mm-hmm. If you want to have the most boring, but maybe fun adapt like interpretation of it. Um, I think that the whole point of having 
Isaac Newton as the villain who is trying to like manipulate fate is to look at how Isaac Newton's um, laws of motion apply to people and their feelings where an object in motion, unless acted upon by an outside force, tends to stay in motion, an object at rest tends to stay at rest, um, and objects move in accordance with, with the amount of force applied to them and the mass and their acceleration. And the most important thing is when two objects, um, when two objects of equal force uh, interact with each other, they apply forces on each other of equal equal magnitude in opposite directions. Like these ideas of imagining imagining human beings in this show as idealized physics bodies, where instead of instead of force and motion, it's emotion and interaction that we that we are that we're supposed to be seeing there. And so I do think that it does it does have some sort of suspicion about one person acting alone um, that they will. I think there is an assumption that they will go into extreme, extreme beliefs and that they will carry things too far because you need to have other objects to, to maintain some sort of stasis and stability. And so I don't think it necessarily recommends a hierarchy, but it definitely recommends accountability uh, between individuals. Um, and I also think that the ending is kind of like, like everyone's like, oh, now that they can get their wishes, they all want everything. So they're all fighting. Um, mm-hmm. which I guess is like strictly true, but it does just feel kind of kind of goofy and hokey, especially when you already have like a love triangle that's been at the heart of this heart of this uh, anime, but has already been kind of neutered by the point that we reach the climax of the of the external plot. The romance has already kind of resolved itself where she's committed to staying by Van's side and trying to keep him from turning into a, a crazy blood knight with, mm-hmm. a, with a dragon robot that he's going to destroy the world with. So, yeah, and then she goes back home. <laughs> yep, telling herself that she'll that she'll always love him, but peace out, peace out, homie. Got to go live my own life on my own island. I can't on my own on my own earth. I can't I can't be like Newton trying to trying to find a different world with different physics that allows me to have my inbuilt assumptions and desires uh, be more validated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Well, how about we talk about the non-plot specifics? How do we feel about the performances? How do we feel about the art, the music? Yoko Kano, she of Cowboy Bebop fame, um, mm-hmm. did all the music in addition to the uh, the OP and ED music. Uh, how do we feel about Maya Sakamoto, who is now a, a celebrated veteran of the industry? This is her first major performance at age 16, as he to me. So... I like them. I can say yeah. that. <laughs> even the art, even the weird Pinocchio art, I like. There's a there's a cleanness of like late era sunrise um, painting on hand on hand painted cells. These beautiful rich backgrounds. There's a bunch of Twitter threads that show like the incredible color and sense of mise en scène that like happens in a lot of these like wide shots. It's a very beautiful anime. I personally believe, even given mm-hmm. my nostalgic for hand painted big budget affairs. I think what it showed me in terms of the art is that what's chain has changed between then and now is not necessarily the highs but the lows like it's it's that when it goes off model it goes really off model and like <laughs> some of the background shots of the crowd were, were, were like <laughs> half drawn faces and just like 
quickly roughly sketched outlines of what the human might be these like weird squiggle faces and it's kind of amusing when you pause the frame because no one could pause the frame perfectly back then like no one but the animators had that ability um and so it never had to survive that sort of scrutiny as long as it looked good in motion it was all all great um but i think it's still despite that at maybe because of that at um at its high points it has this um great sense of personality to every single character like um you can tell the um the the, the sort of the the calling card of of like traditional animation is this ability to um bring someone's small ticks and uh minor inflections to prominence and make them far more noticeable and uh the, the, not uh, not hyper real but um to signpost them to the audience and we've got a a, a great crew and it's not quite an ensemble cast but it has far more people you can can name off the top of your head by the the end of uh the show than most most things mm-hmm. of, of the modern yeah. era like at the very it, least you can differentiate like alan's crew of like ne'er-do-wells and misfits all have a lot of personality to them and i'm sure they all have names but I couldn't tell you what they are, <laughs> but they all are recognizable and they all have a consistent characterization just through, you know, their, you know, quote unquote physical performances. Uh, similarly, uh, Meryl, the, the, the cat girl comedy relief mm. slash Moe interest for Van. Uh, I don't think they, she's very Moe. Well, they, I'm she's out. very cutesy and, but they, her, you know her physical like you know she runs on all fours when she's really getting into mm, it yes. she curls up on people you know in the middle of the night you know like a cat does and not like you know a right. person does when she's angry her tail puffs out like a cat does and it's one she's one of the few like good character like cat girl characters that i could name <laughs> and there's also like other beast people in the show that don't have like the exact same like you know you know there is like the sort of the standard archetypal cat girl that people will go to, you know, like inflecting your, uh, uh, your speech with like mews and meows and stuff like that, or like making little kitty paws or whatever. And she doesn't do any of that stuff. She just like acts like a weird child who is also just has cat characteristics. And it's a a very natural, you know, a, a naturalistic cat girl performance that you don't usually see anywhere else. Yeah, mm. she she's a good gremlin. Um, she, yeah, like uh, yes, she is comedy relief, but like it it's like there's this idea of of like the fo- the fool within um, drama of like this character who gets to to say what everyone's already thinking and and out loud and go oh and to like be not quite an audience insert but like to sp- to speak to what we're thinking in a way that other characters can't and like she she'll call Hitomi out and and like looks at her and is it Miranda it's not Miranda it's Mer- I can never Malerna. 
Elena, and oh, and he's like, well, you you're obviously both in love with, it. like, when the, there's this point where those two are, but are like, I have a friend who who I want um, their their fortune took, and and Will's like, really a friend, yeah, and it's like, to be the, it's it's good to have a character there who, not like aggressively so, but sort of just snidely in the background calls people on their 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 shit and it's it's she's good she's he's kind of like i I think how you like she she embodies katniss not in being uh like saying yeah but by being like this kind of of small petty acts of meanness when it whenever she feels like she's being she's being catty would you say yeah I mean, I, I love. I know the scene you're talking about where they're all staying in a castle or something, and like there's like an impromptu girls' night between Hitomi, Malerna, and and Meryl, and it could be so much more. Of, like they could like be squabbling all night, but they're all trying to figure out a way to like communicate their feelings to each other without making themselves feel exposed to people that they obviously see as kind of their rivals. Like Meryl, Meryl is 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 threatened by Hitomi. Hitomi is threatened by Malerna. Malerna is a goddess and therefore she does not care. I mean, not literally a goddess. She's just (laughs) a person of like, of like better confidence and, and a little bit more poise, but she obviously also feels threatened in her, in her relationship with Alan by these, these other people who have suddenly become very important to him. And like, it's nice. I mean, I feel like if this had more shonen than shoujo leanings, they would have had, there would have been like a a snarky cat fight or maybe some pranks being pulled in each other, but they're just trying to like, trying to talk out their problems in like clumsy teenage girl ways with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And even Alerta, who's like, like a solidly tertiary character gets to have a lot of agency and gets to have a lot of like of depth and texture when she decides to give up on Alan for the good of everybody to like get, you know, the roguish merchant Prince Drayden on their side. And, Mm -hmm. You know, and in doing so, like real makes him realize that he isn't, you know, he isn't ruler material and decides to and actually abdicates the throne in the end so that he can, you know, go back to his life and become somebody worthy of the throne. And like, I, well, I, just... enjoy, I enjoy him a lot. He's he's yeah. he's good. He's good in kind of like he is exceedingly smug and and it is exceedingly enjoyable watching him being smug because <laughs> he's, mm-hmm. he's 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 got like these uh how would you describe his glasses there's a, there's a style to to that sort of thing they're like um like a Just almost round, like a round frame like straight round frame glasses that rest on the nose yeah, yeah. He's always looking over them as well spectacle spectacles even yeah <laughs> yeah and mm-hmm. it's he's got like this as you say like this um traveler prince look to him he's he's very um dashing and roguish and it's it's kind of nice to to like alan's for them to be overt like you've got alan the perfect it's straight-haired blonde blue-eyed poster boy then you've got this curly-haired, um, slightly slovenly dressed, like it's, it's so obviously the like the the bad boy archetype. Yet he's <laughs> and he plays up to that as well. But he he's actually kind of a, a, a nicer person than Alan, and, and he's he's far more self-aware. As Alan Alan does not have self-awareness. Alan is all forward momentum and 
and being Do- a dashing duty. knight. Yeah. Duty, yeah. And, oh, let, let, like, just in terms of, like, oh, by the way, we've also decided to give the uh, cackling uh, sidekick villain a tragic backstory. Um, Everyone gets a tragic backstory. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Dilando yeah. D- um, turning out to not be a he, but be um, Alan's sister, uh, Selena. Um, yeah, that comes out of absolutely nowhere. Um, like there's no no hint to it, and then suddenly one 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 episode. There's a, there's a little hint, but it's a lot easier if you know it's coming to see yeah. to see those hints for what they are, and not just like the weird noise of background noise of anime. But yes, go on. But yeah, there's suddenly one episode. Oh, by the way, we're introducing Alan's and sister who who's been held captive now. Oh, and she she's, seems really strange and and weird and not entirely of her senses. Yeah, she she eats a butterfly that lands on her hand or is it a mm-hmm. is it a snail? Yeah. I yeah. I th- some gross some gross insect lands in her hand I th- and she I think eats she, it and we're like, yeah. "Oh, girl ain't right." Yeah. And then we she gets returned to Alan and Alan's like, "Oh, finally I have my sister back." And then while they're at, I think literally while they're at their father's grave, suddenly she starts going, ah, and it's, oh, wait a second. In fact, she is the evil cackling uh, psychopath we've, he's been fighting all along. What? <laughs> I, right, still... using, using, using fate manipulation technology, the same thing that lets them like inject lucky blood into the two cat girls who serve Falcon. Um, the secondary antagonist to make them more lucky, but then it burns out and they die. Um, that they've been using fate manipulation to make to make Alan's sister into a boy who can be like the the hitman for the for the empire, basically. Mm-hmm. How it's very, did, it's how, a very interesting choice. How, did you not interesting necessarily? Isn't good. I, well, did you come up? Interesting. <laughs> did, did you come up with an like? T- to you a, a, a the reason of what they were trying to do with that or i think mostly what that was was to demonstrate like the the kinds of things that dornkirk was willing to do like he took somebody and literally turned them into a different person to suit his interest and that was bit and you know and the and the fact that his you know delando's uh subordinates and jajica the sort of like the the erstwhile like last you know subordinate of his that turns out to have been uh selena's caretaker when she was having these experiments like performed on her you know there's you know there's this sort of contrast of like the tenderness between them but also delando's psychopathy which you know by all appearances seems to be something that dornkirk put in him to make him a better uh attack dog Mm. See, I'm, I, I'm not... I, I, I thought that the psychopathy was a side effect yeah. of of just getting getting a version of you who's a different gender, pull, like ripped from a different reality and forcibly mapped onto your body. Yeah, and but like the same. I, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard like... to tell. I don't think. I don't think. Yeah, the sadism is also part of the point too. Like mm-hmm. Dornkirk does not yeah. care about people. That's the point of his character. So. Mm-hmm. I kind of wondered if it was kind of a comment on Alan. Like, so when that they've chosen it to be Alan's sister when they created this character like Alan's sister is made into uh, the this commander of this group of of people he cares deeply about his his crew um but doesn't get particularly give a, a damn about anyone else like he he's bloodthirsty 
he he's quite happy to kill. Um, I think like there's this kind of a reflection of Alan in there. Like Delandau is kind of like what happens when it's everything that Alan does as a a warrior is is not cloaked in civility when it's instead cloaked in like um, uh, like overt um, joy in this this pain and and battle. Like I think. I, we're certainly encouraged to believe that Alan enjoys fighting. He he loves having a a good duel. He he, he in the same way that Delanda will 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 seek out wants to seek out Van to fight him. Like that's something in common between Alan and and Delanda at the start. They both want to fight Van. They both see mm-hmm. like this young. Um, young pretender and they both not necessarily feel threatened but uh, they they both want to fight him and see what he's capable of because they feel so um secure in their own skills and like i feel like it's it's an interesting reflection of um maybe what is at the core of alan um this actual psychopath who's who's just clothed in civility I wouldn't go that far, but I do think that when Hitomi does a reading for him and like reacts really strongly and emotionally to 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 the information she gets from him and just watches him just like have have that flash of menace when he's when she's delved too deeply into his into his feelings about his father and their backstory. Like I do think that there is Alan is all all of her potential romances in this world are dangerous. None of them are are as harmless as her as her track team crush um mm-hmm. we have van's clear rage issues and instability and we have the men- the menace of alan and also all these social and institutional relationships that that uh and all, all his all of his baggage that he has with these other characters that's supposed to like it's a fairly good love triangle insofar as there's no good choice although it's very obvious that she's not going to end up with alan i think probably mm-hmm. earlier than they would have liked it for it to be um but yeah yeah, yeah. And I think there's also like a general theme of like the seductive nature of conflict and the will to power and Delando and Alan being reflective of that as well as Van. Like basically anybody who resorts to violence either needs to dial it back or ends up being destroyed by it. Yeah, no, I definitely I definitely agree on that count. It's a very interesting it's interesting that those themes are 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 lodged in there because I know that the um, the accepted story is that uh, Shoji Kawamori uh, came up with this while he was in Nepal um, and he was in this foggy mountain region that felt so close to heaven and he like imagined if there was like another another world out there that was fully just like misty misty beautiful mountains and full of divination and like manipulating fate and stuff and so even though it's very tempting to to position escaflone along a a series of just like developing elaborations on the mech formula especially at sunrise as they were trying to figure out new revenue streams to go along with their staple gundam franchise because gundam wing had just finished airing right before escaflone comes out um but you have like our our battler dubine in um in the late 80s and then you have Magical Night Rareth a few weeks, a few years before uh, before Escaflone. We have these fantasy, these fantasy mecha, especially like shoujo tinge fantasy mecha. And then afterwards, Kawamori 
Kawamori's been working on Macross, and he goes on to work on uh, Earth Maiden Arjuna, which is also kind of a weird, mystical, highly pacifist, highly emotional um, sci-fi from sci-fi from uh, Sunrise. And I'm currently watching Gasaraki, which is this weird anti-American um, military uh, thriller that uh, that features Shinto and uh, and no drama really heavily as as themes. And you can definitely see that they're taking like what parts of the ambient culture that aren't currently associated uh, with with Mecca can we associate with Mecca? And it makes you realize that Evangelion was not something that just happened in isolation. That there was a lot of experimenting throughout the the early to mid nineties trying to come up with like what new detail could come to define the mech genre. Um, and Evangelion got it with like really overblown psycho psychoanalytic uh, understandings of its characters and also a little bit with like random religion shit. Um, but it's interesting to see Escaflone as kind of an also ran uh, a different a different world where one aired before the other where like shoujo romances and like really out there fantasy worlds became like a really a big staple of the mecha genre just thinking about that it's it's nice as like a, a road less traveled i think that's what part of why i enjoy it so much now um that how how they're trying to integrate all these details and how they're trying to have a, a manga setting that is medieval and focus a lot on character relationships and tie that to this the story of of another world and other fates and other selves that can get can be brought through magic and fate to become us. Um, I think that the fact that that uh, Alan looks exactly like a, is his name Asano Akano a something sensei uh, or senpai yeah Amano sen, senpai um, that he looks exactly like that and then his sister is transformed into uh, a man from a from a different it's it's very there's a lot of ideas of just that where they're trying to bridge the the abstract idea of what these characters are about, what the story is about with the the literal fantasy setting, future isekai setting, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. Do you think this was a evolutionary dead end or do you think it does have some distance as they may be um, ancestors in modern anime? Oh, I wish I'd had more prep to <laughs> to, to answer that for you. I mean, Kazuki, it made Kazuki Akane's career at the very least. Um, that's his, that's his first thing that he directed. And eventually he went on to, to, to be doing one of the shows that you like quite a lot. Duncan stars the line. Yeah. Um, and he also did like one, one of the shows I quite like, but no one else ever, uh, uh watches, which is, um, birdie decode. Which oh, is, which, I was going to say Hikai J, which he also did. And it's also very good. Um, and I have I have no in on my hard drive, which I may watch someday. I've heard it's kind of boring, but whatever. No in I don't know. Was I, I, it was okay. Um, <laughs> I think like it 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 had very big expectations at the time. It's quite hyped. I remember, but I don't think it necessarily really lived up to those. But Birdie Decode was actually very one of the these the series which I watched and thought, well, that actually has. In, incredibly good animation i mm. wasn't expecting anything of this and like okay I, I guess no one else cares about this either and it was like okay i guess i just found like this good um kind of superhero heroine show um and it's 
I guess one of the things um, I I don't know if how are you familiar with with that that that's sort of micro franchise at all. I'm I'm aware of it. I guess would be the most generous description. Okay, so the, the, like has a, a a female heroine, um, but one of the, the it's set up in its first episode is she's sharing a body with a, a teenage boy um, that she accidentally basically half kills him in a a, a fight right, in the in thing, and so in order that he can have like his body regrown, he's like sharing her her body, and so. He, by day, it she is him in school, and by night, it, she's in control doing the fighting, and he's kind mm. of a passenger. And it's it was kind of like an a, a, a interesting um, showing just like how it approaches gender, and like I think maybe um, shows more um, shoujo um, characteristics than uh, a lot of other shows in the. Um, uh, super hit heroes genre. I'm trying to think what what else. Well, well, what, what I would float is is, and this might can be maybe our transition to the movie uh, Escaflone from the year 2000. Is if I look at Kazuke Akane's later work, and if even if I look at um at the later work that uh that Shoji Kawamori did outside of outside of Macross, of course, um, but I do think that there is. There is this lack of understanding in what makes what makes uh, Escaflone unique, and I do think that there was the 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 shojo framing, the heavily like romance focused framing, the the focus on character relationships, on like soft matters like divination and fate. I think it's is left by the wayside because it was seen as the primary obstacle to Escaflone's more mainstream success, and I think. When we look at Escaflone, a girl and guy, what we see is someone taking the wrong lessons from from the mm-hmm. relative relative underappreciatedness of Escaflone. Is that we see people who say, "Oh, the problem was that it was a girl and she had a bunch of stuff going on and she did tarot and it was about a love triangle with these two guys and it was about her trying to like control her own fate," which has a very freighted thing. I think that honestly it is an evolutionary dead end. I think that sometimes the cast, the, the crew members take forward some ideas, but in terms of the, the specific blend of shojo and shonen, I mean, this is also a show where like they published a, a shonen version of the manga of the, of the, the adaptations manga, and they published two shojo versions of it. So they literally mm-hmm. made different versions of the story in manga form for the different audiences. And there was this idea possibly that came from there that they could just take out the shojo stuff and run it more as a straight series. And so, I don't know, that's what would make me suggest that it is kind of a dead end mm-hmm. in a way. I'm going to say something which will both horrify and delight. Was maybe something like Frank's an attempt to 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 bring romance elements back into Mecca, or was it still was it still just just what Shonen thinks romance is rather than what Shoujo thinks romance is? I mean, Frank's was like as much about like marriage <laughs> and family as it was about romance, and that's true. It was still a failure, but I <laughs> like it might. Like it, it wasn't it, like Frank's at no point was trying to be a different genre or a, or appeal to a different audience through its trappings. It was just all theme and plot, but it was very, very much like just a, a shonen mecha show with 
cute girls and weird themes. Yeah. 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 I think that it, it, it might have been sort of a, an accidental recreation of a lot of the elements that probably informed, uh, informed Escaflone also inform Frank's, but Frank's is ultimately like, yeah, it's ultimately a story told from the man's side of, of a romance and like zero to up until the very end is depicted as like dangerous and inscrutable and, and ultimately not even particularly human. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't think, I think in that respect, it's pretty different from Hitomi, who I think is almost in every single respect, the most human and comprehensible character in the show, at least in terms of her motivations. I guess like, I'm I, like, I've, I've been, <laughs> I've just been racking my head to try and think of something where, which, did try and bring the female perspective of romance to a mecha show and that and we end up um maybe with the um FLCL um uh mm. sequels and i think one they they were retrospectively completely unsuccessful when they attempted to deal with it head on and actually fairly successful when they when it was more um, concerned with just the experience of being a, a young woman rather than mm-hmm. necessarily romance in particular. So I think it is perhaps in Isekai where you will find that the in its many and multiple different um, shows where you you will find the closest um, to, to this show where there are shoujo isekais which... But there's there's very rarely very rarely mecha uh, isekais, which is a strange one. You'd think there would be quite a few of them. Yeah, I was surprised when I was when I was doing research at how how uh, Ara Battler Dinbine is how old it is. Like it's it's Tomino in the mid and late '80s doing a world where like there are uh, where there are these things called Ara Battlers that that run off of your like internal soul strength and those are like the like elite units in an otherwise perfectly well they have they have unicorns but an otherwise perfectly normal medieval army um that there is what what if what if armored knights were giant robots is apparently a question that by the time escalfone came around people had been asking for over a decade um so it is very interesting to to how that how that line hasn't been carried through it's kind of like evangelion was an extinction event um or maybe just the anime bubble popping was an extinction event for yeah. a lot of different stuff. <laughs> you think something like Full Metal Panic could have <laughs> something to, yeah. to owe Escaflone? Because it, it, it's more of a comedy, but it also sort of has the like high school girl falls for mech idiot sort yeah. of vibe. Yeah, the, there's definitely that there. I guess the thing which is missing is that love triangle, like the, the, that the drama coming from the... the the relationships rather than from the mechs and I, I guess that's because as um, the uh, Eva as reception and fandom has shown that people will care about the mechs because <laughs> um, like I I, th- I, th- I think there is is a story about love even within in Eva even if it is a very um, uh, teenage unformed unhealthy and uh, uneven love of of story it tells at times there's mm-hmm. it definitely he does 
tell that that story it's it's not just about a boy and his robot and i guess it's the it's the differences it's it's one boy and two girls one who who is a reincarnation of his mother instead of one one girl and two boys one of whom is a uh, one of whom is the exact spinning image of her other crush from a different world yeah. so yeah it's, <laughs> there has to be some sort of texture there i do have to credit you jeff uh the first uh full metal panic light novel came out in 1998 so your timeline is plausible if you if you'd be willing to argue it harder so came out a year and change after i mean i don't have i'm not a big fan of full metal panic it was just yeah. kind of a brainwave but yeah i couldn't i couldn't go any harder than that the only other, <laughs> other one i can think of which has heavy um showed your um design elements is lelouch but i'm really not that familiar with the franchise to know if what it, code, code geass yeah hey uh <laughs> Guess who directed uh, Code Geass Akito the Exiled yeah. in 2012 to 2016? Oh. Yep. He directed one of the, the Code Geass spinoffs, reboots, whatever. Like, that's, that's a series I remember watching the, f- the first series of, of and it being quite a big deal at its time and mm-hmm. being quite successful and having a... Like, Lush, uh, Code Geass was quite interesting because the big power its big twist was that the most powerful thing was not the robots it was this power he'd been given which he used outside of the robots to manipulate it was at the same sort of time as we got death note and that that same sort of uh, Mm. mystical uh, manipulation and and social engineering i think Koges had this thing which i guess is in common with escaflony in that it you had this power structure which was depicted as like corrupt and sort of quasi-medieval and this idea of um, within it um, this strange mysticism mixed with science like people having the power of god and yet flying around in mechs and i guess i think maybe that is is the logical deep deep through many many generations descendant of escaflone where you have the mech fights not being the the main focus, but the friendships and the uh, family relationships. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's st- still not a, a true romance, but at least it has uh, the, the shoujo um, uh, looks to it. And it's pretty boy, pretty bisho boys. Mm-hmm. Well, we've invo- avoided it for long enough. Let's talk about the movie. Um... It's bad. <laughs> Real bad, Ben. <laughs> It's got good parts, not necessarily in the plot or the characterization, but yes, there was an, there was a movie, um, as I've said before, Escaflone, A Girl in Gaia. Um, this makes a lot of very major changes, but it's got the same basic outline um, where Hitomi is teleported to Gaia, where she is becomes the person in charge of Escaflone, which is one of like two extant giant robot suits in this version of the world. Um, and she struggles a lot with whether she should give her Virginia, sorry, her, um, her robot to either Falcon who wants to destroy the world or to Van who doesn't really have much going on. He just seems kind of angry. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually she does give it to him and there's a fight. And then, and then she goes back home presumably yeah it's it's a it's a very weird boiling down of the of the the series 
What are y'all's reactions? It, it, felt, it felt to me like someone had had basically took the original series, chopped it up into like five five minute segments for each character. Said, "Okay, uh, here's this character. Completely forget all his defining traits, but have them do something cool in this five minute segment, and then move on." And the, every scene in it just felt like an excuse to to. Uh, show off a character doing something rather than any real um, world building or character motivation. It just mm-hmm. seems so weirdly devoid of either interconnecting character uh, moments or um, an overlying plot. It, it just very strange film. It, like as I say, it fe- felt like a s- series of shorts cobbled together in a, to me, like. You know how in a short, it's you, there are someone doesn't attempt to tell a story; they just attempt to show something cool, this this interesting moment, and like there's moments in it which, on their own, are visually interesting and might be cool within some greater uh, thing, but none of them seem to connect, and I I just don't know. Yeah, so for me, it it feels very clear that. That this is a show that was that Kazuki Akane was told to like to get it on screen in 90 minutes um, and to like do what he can to remove the parts that connected less with audiences. So Hitomi does not have friends or hobbies. She does not have a crush. She's a traditional shonen movie protagonist in everything but her gender. She's con- completely consumed by the emptiness of her deep depression. She actively wishes for self-annihilation um but instead finds herself in the middle of a of a prophecy that threatens the annihilation of the entire world um transplanted into a new alien body that is that is uncomfortable and horrifying but above all strong and similarly the two male leads are are just like unlikable dick bags <laughs> van's now just like unthinking berserker alan's a smarmy mercenary everyone else has gotten kind of like sarcastic and mean I don't know what led him to conclude that the shoujo-ness of the of the anime was a problem um, rather than the one thing that makes it like unique and memorable. But they went all in on that on that on that vote. Really, the only thing that stays from the original series, in my opinion, is this idea that Hitomi's emotional state has the power to save or destroy the world. Mm -hmm. But in the movie, she's a completely passive observer, um, completely like. Yeah, go yeah ahead. <laughs> it, it nearly becomes like a like an Alice in Wonderland kind of situation where she feels alienated and detached from everybody, retreats into this fantasy world, is seduced by, you know, on one side, a you know, Falcon who wants to annihilate the world because of his own like all consuming isolation and depression and everybody else who wants to live and, you know, through a series of events that are like they exist in the show, but are, you know, reduced to just tiny little snapshots of what they were of like her getting kidnapped uh, and ultimately rescued by Van, who then, you know, they spark a connection, which then turns her <coughs> heart away from Falcon and towards Van. And then, you know, Falcon finds his second chance of like, oh, I found another big armor to destroy the world with. And it's her. <laughs> You know her connection to Van that allows him to push through and eventually, you know, save the world. And like, 
it, it has a weird thing where like every character in the show makes a cameo appearance in that like Alan is sort of he's present but he's never really he's he's not a, a, at any point a a love interest like he basically exists as he does in like the first 10 minutes of his existence on the show as this like smug cold mercenary commander and that's basically his whole role mm-hmm. in the show Malerna is bafflingly turned into like a sword bunny who just kind of is part of Alan's crew and doesn't really <laughs> do anything aside from like be the girlfriend for Hitomi and for a couple of minutes. Meryl was already kind of a nothing character in the show and so survives mostly unscathed. Uh, but even like Delan. Sure, her, her whole thing was just reacting off of Van. So the fact that Van is less of a an entity means that Meryl just has a little bit less going on. I, feel I mean, like. one of the yeah. things which bothered me about it was, was how Meryl is distinctly sexed up compared to her, her original one. Like she's uh, goes from being like her defining character, it's being this bratty kid to like being like uh, having her, her skirt riding up by her tail and like, yeah, no, no, thanks. Let's not have yeah, that. Definitely they, they give her more titillating <laughs> secondary features for sure. And Delandau is just a crazy person who wants to fight and never moves beyond that. Like, you know, there's no connection to Alan. All of that stuff is gone. And well, like, they, there's no connection to his to the people he commands, too. He's like, yeah. oh, if you die, then you're not strong and only the strong deserve to live. It's like, really, is this are we really just taking like literally any shonen antagonist could say that it's yeah. the most generic characterization yeah like he basically just exists <sighs> because like oh everybody expects this character to show up in the show and like jajika is there but again is just to like put upon like secondary guy there's like a, a sort of a idea that like the beast people are serving Vulcan out of fear and so you know at the last moment Jajika like stabs Vulcan in the heart, which again is something that happens in the show, but for completely different reasons and hits completely differently. And like there's, there's a weird sense of obligation for a lot of the plot points that are just like, people expect these things to happen. Like there's a point where, you know, Van after his fighting, uh, Delandau in their big robots like his his robot turns black and he loses himself to the, the to the fight and then Hitomi brings him back and like that was like you know an important just plot by point yelling at that, him like, too <laughs> yeah and like and like in the show like that that was the beginning of like a whole arc of like self-discovery and like a nude page in their relationship when that happened whereas in the show it's just oh now i realize that fighting is bad and i'm gonna go save my brother and oh no the 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 guy killed him anyways and so now everything is fine i guess the end Hitomi is like now you know she grows some wings in the last shot and vanishes and then we slowly descend into space while yoko kano sings and i think did this this was like a couple of years after uh, Cowboy Bebop, I guess. But that like, th- like that was like the most like I felt throughout the whole movie, but specifically because I was thinking about Spike Spiegel. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually interesting. This is a, a fact I didn't know is that that song, the one song that they play over and over throughout the movie because it's beautiful, but also, yeah, uh, is called Sora. But it originally comes from a soundtrack that Kano wrote in 1992 for a animated film called the creation 
depicting biblical stories, hmm. uh, and it's called the Tower of Babel. There, so that is what it that was what it originally was eight huh. years before. It was a song about like humanity's like hubris uh, and and lack of awareness of the situation, building building a tower to meet God. So, yeah, I mean her her work in this is so great. Like all the music is is so beautiful, and I think that like that is a lot of the the shoujo feel in the TV show is. It's Kano's extremely like delicate, wistful score, and you can tell that in the movie that that one song is is like their number one with the bullets because that's all that's like all the music is. There's occasionally just some generic like orchestral stuff, um, but if they can get that like ha 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 like going on, they'll do it whatever they can. So no wonder they put it at the end too, just to remind you more beautiful things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, mostly it's just like fighting and violence, like and you know, well yeah. executed. You know, Van Halo drops onto a Zeppelin and like <sighs> chops dudes up like it's a scene in like Ninja Scroll or something like that. And that was pretty badass. But like again, <laughs> completely like scroll. you know, him killing was something that actively hurt him throughout Escaflone the series, yeah. and having him just be a blood crazed berserker in the movie like you know again like that happens to him for you know there's a snapshot in time where that is true for him and for that to be his the entirety of his characterization in the movie is like again missing the point like it's just like we want everybody to be at their worst moments and then just have the whole story take place at mm. that like Hitomi's starting suicidal like sort of like yeah. again like that sort of happens for like an episode but there is a lot of build up to that and there's a lot of payoff to that. Whereas in this, she, you know, we have no reason to understand like why she feels this way. She's just pushing her friends away, thinking about killing herself and then gets called to this other world by Fulcan, who is similarly depressed. And like, that's the extent of their connection. It seems like depressed for stupid reasons too. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, cause they, they explicitly say that it's cause he got passed over for the throne in favor of Vaughn. But you always like to have the two sides, like the angels, angel and demon on, on your shoulders. One of them's like destroy the entire world. No one deserves to live. Everyone will be happy if they're dead. And the one on the other shoulders, like let's kill a few people, see where it goes from there. Like, Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll kill more after that. There's like such little texture and yet, in the moral dilemma being presented to Hitomi. Yeah, and mm. they still had had to like throw in this this moment at the end where uh, Van's like, "No, brother," and and his and Falcon <laughs> flashes back to child Van running towards him, and like, there's no no sign of him being anything but like this psychopathic killer who's decided to annihilate the whole world because as he's been passed over for the throne for 90% of the movies and then just has this random flashback to his his brother as a kid and like, oh, how sad. And it's like, no, you don't get to do it like that. You have to actually work at character development. If you don't do your character development, you don't get your payoffs. And they didn't. They didn't do any we character development. no characterization. <laughs> <laughs> We don't need no plot payoffs. <laughs> Leave that anime alone. No. Oh. <laughs> so is there anything else to say? It's very beautiful. The um, the fight on the cooling lava field when the rain starts. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. The different mountainsides and, and sunscapes and everything. Beautiful. 
even the art I think is overall better. Although I do don't like everyone's like weird limpid eyes yeah. in the in the movie. Yeah. Um, but but it's 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 beautifully done. It's it's um it's bones, but it's a lot of sunrise people working with them too because it was originally a sunrise property. Mm-hmm. And like it looks great. It, it's an amazing looking movie. Um, and. I don't think a lot of the fight, the the density of fights would not be bearable if it was not such just it that at least I feel like heavily evokes the the escaflowness of, of I mean, the property is, is the art is very I mean, I know you don't want you don't want to do anything but holistically hate it, Duncan. I understand <laughs> the thing is like each of those flight fights is beautiful on their own, but none of them have any relation to each other. None of them tell you anything about how the character fights that what their strengths and weaknesses as a fighter are and therefore build up any dramatic tension when we see them fight we just see van going berserker with his 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 sword against uh these like quasi samurai warriors then we find out he's fighting with psychic power against delando then we see him fighting with a giant mech and none of those those things actually his fighting style doesn't really persist between them it's just like Okay, here's a cool yeah. thing he mm-hmm. can do. It could have been a different character in in every scene there, and it wouldn't have made any any difference. Yeah, each I mean each each fight could be the first fight of the movie or the last fight of the yeah. movie, um, which is which is not a great sign. Yeah. Um, and when you yeah, have to have like a, a obviously the divine character who just like says like what's going on like. The character of Sora, who I think is supposed to be a draconian, which were like the extinct Atlantis people in the TV show. And she's just like, she's like, Vulcan's really sad. He's got lots of sorrow. And then later on, she's like, okay, well, if you do this, you'll die. And then you die. Like, it's, just, it's literally just signposting for a movie that's already so cut down and so... Yeah, so and, and express and trains the ending. This bit in the bit beginning where Hitomi sees like this p- person in uh, a crowd who looks like a dr- draconian again, and like we're never told who that person is, whether it was a young falcon, whether it was that uh, that uh, woman who grows up to be like Sora. The, yeah. is, is it Sora? Do we know that? Or, but her name is. No, I know. I'm saying that that character's name is okay. Sora. I don't know who that's supposed to be. I I guess we're just supposed to be like, oh, maybe she can sometimes see the other world. Except it's in space. It's not like... <laughs> yeah, I think it's supposed to be Falcon. And yeah. Like, it's just to imply that they're connected in some way. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be Falcon, too. Or that he's a manifestation of that part of her, or... Well, because they're both suffering from the same sadness, too. Yeah. 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 And, and there was this strange thing, like, some of Falcon's design elements got moved over to Van. Like, Van has this, um, like, armor guard down one arm, and one of the design characters of Falcon in the original series, he's, he's basically... One of his arms t- is torn off by the, the dragon and replaced by a mechanical one by Dunkirk and mm-hmm. Van's uh, sort of uh, armor plating on his arm seems to mirror that. Yeah, and also like Falcon's uh, like facial tattoos or makeup or whatever that's supposed to be gets transferred yeah. over to Van, whereas he, you know, he is whole and just in full Goblin King regalia uh, in the movie. Yeah, it's very Goblin King. <laughs> yes. Also, they ruined like the the TV shows airships are so much more interesting than just the basic yeah. ass dirigibles yeah. of of the Black Dragon Clan that they decide to rename the Zybok. Uh, why why would you take like cool like floating castles and turn them into just like oh they're steampunk dirigibles? Well, because then you'd have to waste eight seconds explaining that there's floating rocks in this world. 
Yeah. I, I, I loved how Falcons was just looked like a giant tooth, basically. He had like these three roots down from the, this thing, and it just looked like there's this tooth floating around. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of the, the building architecture of the Gaians in a. Uh, Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri, where it has this like kind of like lumpy mm. structures. Maybe maybe they'd seen Nescaflone. Yeah. It also yes. kind of reminds me of the space fortresses in Gundam that were frequently built into mm. uh, asteroids. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. One thing I wish I could have shared with y'all before before we wrap up um, is that one of one of the extras on on Escaflone TV series is a is a series of interviews called Club Escaflone, and the last four are informative but pretty dry interviews with with a uh, kazuki akane shoji kawamori uh, about making the movie but the first two um have a uh, uh, seiji is it seiji tomozawa i'm gonna tomo to- seki tomokazu who's the who's the voice of v- van um but he is cosplaying as a bartender in a fake bar and then other actors including the underage Maya Sakamoto, like walk in and they like, he like makes them drinks and they talk about their different characterizations and their experiences auditioning and stuff. Um, and they're all dressed up like the guy who does Falcon, like literally has like the teardrop tattoo and is wearing a cape. Mm. It's not a great cosplay, but it's a very, it, 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 it strikes, it, it reminds me of the, the warmth that Escaflone, the TV show was made with of that, you have these goofy, these goofy like in costume interviews between the actors where they're talking about making the different characters and how did they come into the anime industry. And then, the, and then in the middle, there's a commercial break where they all do pre-recorded statements. They're like, we like to have fun sometimes, but you shouldn't drink this much. And also, I don't drink that much. Like there's there's a statement about how like they don't do jokes and they don't do drinks. Don't worry. This is just an act they're putting on. It's very <laughs> cute. I wish I wish they were on like YouTube or something. They should be, uh, but they're not like it's just. It it feels like a time capsule of like innocence and creativity that oftentimes anime doesn't always anime often feels like a really commercial product. And I think that um, that uh, Club Escaflone is is the height of that appeal. And the Escaflone movie is the is the nadir of that appeal of being something that's like special that people cared about um, and that wasn't necessarily meant to to find a large audience, whether or not it deserved to. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. Mm. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up then. Rate and subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. Find us on Facebook. Search for Keyframes Podcast. Find us on Twitter at Keyframes Pod. Email us questions, keyframespodcast at gmail.com. And of course, tell a friend about Escaflone and this podcast. Say goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>